0: Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Sorry for a couple of weeks' silence. We've just been waiting for the unveiling of the one-day series in the West Indies to, to finish and then we thought we'd review it as a whole. There's been so much cricket on in the world, never mind in, in West Indies as well, with uh, the fantastic performance by Sri Lanka to beat South Africa 2-0 in South Africa. Australia, of course, playing one-day series in India at the moment. New Zealand just racked up 700 against Bangladesh. There's also So Afghanistan playing Ireland and all sorts of other cricket going on like the Pakistan Super League as well. So it's really a a sort of cricket lovers paradise at the moment with so much cricket going on. And talking of paradise, there is Simon Mann trailing around the world doing his job in Barbados, Grenada and St Lucia. It's a tough life,
1: Simon. Well, someone's got to do it, Yozza, haven't they? Uh, someone's got to report back and tell everybody what's happening in, in this series out here. Uh, it just <laughs> falls to me to be the person to do it, that's all. <laughs> I remember when um, my, my ex-wife actually got a job
0: uh, once uh, w- doing some PR for the windsurfing in Barbados and she had to be out for, for about a week in Barbados and she said, well, I'm just testing the, the texture
1: of the sand. So have you, have you done any of that? Have you tested what- the texture of the sand? I've walked along a few beaches in my time out here in the last couple of weeks, but actually it's been a very intense one-day series and I've been working very hard. (laughs) Well, I'm sure. I mean, it's almost been
0: a case of, I should think, ducking, actually, in the commentary box because there's been over 100 sixes in those four one-day games. We're going to be uh, looking back at those matches and looking at the future for England and also the West Indies. But uh, let's look back at the series then. And uh, overall, I suppose England will feel miffed in a way because this is the first series for, for 10 uh, actual series that they haven't won.
1: Yeah, I thought the start of the series based on what we've seen from the West Indies in the last four or five years. I mean, you were out here a couple of years ago and England wiped the floor with them. They were poor. They haven't won a series since 2014. I thought that added up to England winning the series at, at, at worst 3-2, possibly 4-1. I could see them losing a game somewhere. And, you know, if it went really well, 5-0. Of course, that didn't happen because we had one game rained off in Grenada, which was hugely frustrating. But the West Indies were very good and they really challenged England and they opened up a few flaws in this England side. Definitely yesterday in St Lucia with a bouncy pitch, England didn't adapt, they couldn't deal with it and West Indies got stuck into them. England were out to the short ball, eight dismissals to the short ball and then there was that match in Barbados and I think in a strange way actually, the match in Barbados was more of a concern. The one they lost England, the second game where they lost six wickets for 35 you can just see a situation. Actually, as I was watching it, I was thought, "This I won, if this was a World Cup semi-final, could England pull this around when Ben Stokes was out? They were five down then. They were still in a good position, and they couldn't deal with the pressure of the situation. And they, they faltered, and West Indies burst through the door and won the game. In a way, I thought that was a, a more worrying game for England because it was a game they had in control, not total control, but they had in control and they threw it away under pressure. And I thought that was more of a concern. The game in St Lucia, I mean, England do have those games every now and again. I think the point is, is when they get to the World Cup, they play nine group matches and they can afford, probably, to have t- a couple of off days because there's room for manoeuvre, there's room to make up in, in other games. Of course, you don't want to have too many off days, and otherwise you end up ha- in a situation that Australia encountered in 1992 where they, they didn't get to the latter stages of the competition. So, in, in a way, that initial stage of the World Cup is fine for them, and then, of course, the pressure builds as it does on all the teams, I suppose, though, in the semi-finals and the final. But the expectation, I think, would be on England in a semi-final. It's worth saying, of course, I mean, this is, this is not being you know, arrogant or whatever. England surely are good enough to make the semi-finals. I'm not saying England definitely get to the semi-finals, but I think there's a reasonable expectation that England will get to the last four. And then if they do, that's when the pressure is going to build
0: yeah and you you've mentioned in the past uh, your concern about england you know sometimes in these one off games and also particularly adapting to conditions when pitches haven't been quite right like that champions Trophy semi-final in Cardiff, for instance, when Pakistan bowled them out cheaply, Uh, other examples, and obviously in St Lucia the other day when they were bowled out for 113, at one point they were kind of like 100 for five and then they just completely collapsed. I I think it must be difficult, just being sympathetic for a moment, because they have sort of, you know, raised the bar in terms of the way they've batted in one-day cricket over the last two years and their their strike rate, their, their run rate is sort of 6.5 and over, is higher than any other country. But at the same time, they have occasionally just blown up like they did in St Lucia. And it must be very difficult to know when to change tempo, when to change approach. I mean, looking at those dismissals, you know, the first two or three... You could sort of excuse because players were looking to be positive as they are in the first ten overs. And when when is it that you change tone? When is it you decide? Well, I'm not going to hook the short ball because in the past the short ball, you know, even if top edge has gone for six a couple of times in the St Lucia game, the top edge was caught and it didn't go for six. When do you start to say, well, actually, maybe I should leave a few balls? uh, You know, when when you're five down. You know, it, it's just, you know, should Moe Ali have left the one that he chased, for instance? Mm. Uh, should Josh Butler, perhaps, with England sort of seven or eight down, have not gone for the hook? You know, but it's very difficult for players when they have that mindset of going after the bowling to then sort of rein back. You know, you've got that point five of a second to decide on your stroke. And if your mindset is one that, you know, I'm going to chase everything wide and, and really try and impose myself, it, it, it isn't easy to know... When to change tack?
1: Yeah, that—that's a very good point. I mean, Trevor Bayliss <laughs> afterwards, I've never seen Trevor quite as animated. I mean, I would say animated in inverted commas. He wasn't sort of shouting and swearing. He, but it just just the use of language, describing the performance as terrible. I don't think I've ever heard him use a word like that before. Uh, and then you talk about the players in the in the changing room, you know, uh, upset. But you know, they they ought to feel. I think there's a bit of embarrassment in there as well. And he he just pointed to that inability to adapt. And I think it, it's a really good point, actually, because I think in the game in, in St Lucia, you know, a score of 220, 230, would have, England would have been right in that game, I think. There was enough in the pitch to encourage the bowlers, which is actually great to see after everyone was disappearing around the park earlier in the series. There was enough in that pitch to give an England some encouragement if they got two twenty, two thirty, on the board. I think, that, I think that was what was really frustrating. It, it, it didn't need... Two eighty, three hundred. It needed 220, although with Chris Gale around, you, you you never quite know how many you need. I mean, he's been absolutely phenomenal in this mm. series. Yeah. But, I mean, absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about Chris Gale in a bit, but
0: just going back on England and, and adapting to conditions and knowing what is a good score, you know, is it down to the opening pair or say the top three to really identify, analyse the pitch and the behaviour in the first five or six overs, and and they have to come up with a strategy as a result. I think it's that you know it's those top maybe the top four, you know, Morgan as well being captain. Uh, you know, could you tell? in the St Lucia game, could you tell after three or four overs
1: that this pitch was going to be doing a bit more than some of the others? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, there was a ball that Jason Holder bowled in the, his first over, I think it was, that really flew through outside the off stump. I think the ball was left, but it really smacked high into the gloves of, of Shea Hope. And you thought, hold on a second, this pitch is, is a bit different. Of course, sometimes on, you know, Bouncy pitches; the ball can disappear as well. Just your scoring areas are a little bit different. I mean, Root, for example, went for the uppercut and hit it straight to third man. So your, your scoring areas can be different. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think there was there was an indication fairly early on. I, I suppose the other thing I, w- I would say is that you know, is that sudden that suddenness of having to adapt because England played on Wednesday in in Grenada. I mean, it, was a, it was an amazing occasion that that match in, on Wednesday. People I've, I've spoken to a few people back in the UK after that game, and they said, "Oh, it's boring. The ball's just disappearing for six the whole time. Forty-six sixes. You know, it, the bowls are just there to be smashed everywhere. It's, it's not a contest." But actually, if you were there, it was an it was incredibly intense occasion and an absolutely gripping. There was a fantastic. There was a fantastic atmosphere in the ground. Everyone was sort of really glued to the match and the players were drained afterwards and it was just that feeling i think while, while west Indies were chasing of uh, c- they couldn't could they they, they surely couldn't score uh, this massive 400 plus to win and, and it just it kept you engaged the whole way through so it was that really intense occasion and then two days later you're on a very different surface in st lucia you're already two one up in the series it's the last match of the series you, know, you can't lose the series uh, I don't know whether and, and it was just all that, that sort of perfect storm in a way for England. Uh, and and that, that's why I think in a, in a strange way, if you look back at it, actually Barbados was a, a more damaging defeat possibly than St. Lucia. But, you know, the West Indies have, have opened up a, a few cracks in this England one day side. Mm. A few bowlers have been pummeled in the last couple of weeks mm, uh, the, yeah. the, the batting you know the clearly the batting has stood up uh, pretty well I think the, the batting lineup is solid as far as the World Cup's concerned I think we know pretty much what it's going to be bowling well I mean there's there's Jofra Archer isn't there in the background
0: mm. yes well yes we, we certainly look at that it's funny actually because I I did a lunch the other day and somebody asked me at this lunch who would I rather bowl at Joss Butler or Chris Gale given that that match in Grenada, where they both scored hundreds. And it obviously is a difficult question to answer. But in the end, I, I at the time, this is before the St Lucia game, I answered that I'd least like to bowl at Butler because he just destroys you from every length. And there's, I don't know where to bowl. I wouldn't know where to bowl at Butler. That innings of 150-odd in, in uh, Grenada... You know, he was hitting yorkers for six. He was hitting short balls for six. You know, he was hitting balls in all directions for six. And you know, if you think, well, the the banker is the yorker, he can ramp that over the fine leg fielder for six. You know, if you try the bouncer, so he's, he's got the the pull and the cut and all that and the upper cut and everything. So you know, he's just got a shot for every different delivery and he does it in such a nonchalant way as well he destroys you in a sort of cold-blooded way and i thought well I, I whereas i thought if i was bowling really as quick as possible like the mark wood sort of pace and mix that up with slower balls i felt i could do gale you know mm. maybe the odd one would go out of the park but i felt the odd you know, one yours well the odd <laughs> one but i felt that if i was bowling at chris gale in my in my, my best years mm. i would have tried a couple of quick bounces, and then a really good slower ball, and I might have got him out. And I thought, well, I hope Mark Wood tries this in the final game in uh, St Lucia. And of course, Mark Wood tried everything, and got hit all over the place mm. by Gale for nine sixes, not all off Wood, but, you know, so even the, the pace of Wood in the end w- w- was destroyed by Gale. I mean, a couple of his balls were sort of 93 miles an hour, and they were just swatted like flies over over deep midwicket. So I mean bowling at these guys is is incredibly tough but I think why I think Jofra Archer will be invaluable is that he's got two things firstly slippery pace and if you look at the uh, performances of the England bowlers in that series just gone the two most economical bowlers were Wood and Liam Plunkett Plunkett only took one wicket but he only went for 6.3 and over, which is pretty good in that onslaught. And Wood only went for 6.1 and over in the four games. So, you know, that's impressive stuff from him. And it just shows the, the value of pace. Archer has that pace, but what he also has vitally is a brilliant change of pace. Probably the best that I've seen around the game. He has a couple of different slower balls, which he just produces naturally. And they are really clever. So uh, I think he's going to be an invaluable addition to this squad. Who makes way for him? Well, I guess it's Tom Curran, probably, who's most vulnerable. David Willey, you know, you kind of... I know he hasn't played. um, He hasn't been quite fit enough anyway. I suppose you would sort of have him in the squad, hanging around maybe, just because he's got the ability. Why?
1: I know he's a a left-armer. I know Mm. he's a left-armer, and you think, well, it's a different angle of attack, uh, but...
0: Ask different questions he, in English conditions.
1: Yeah, but does he? He doesn't bowl very much. If he doesn't swing it with a new ball, it, the the pace is you know is it's quite it's, it's quite low. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm well, not sure. I'm not sure. What I'm saying. I think the point I'm saying is yeah. I I totally understand the argument for for David Willey, but actually, is there a stronger argument for Tom Curran who's got all those change ups as well uh, uh, over David Willey? Just because he it doesn't have to play just because he's a left armer Do you know what I mean? If, if, if your left armour is not of the, of the highest quality, then mm. is it worth having a left armor in just because you've got a left armour?
0: I think uh, he, he does swing the ball, David Willey. That's, that's the main thing. And batsmen are still around the world not very good at playing swing. So I, I would just have him as, a, as an option. For me, Jofra Archer has similar deception to Tom Curran, and he's quicker. So uh, for me, it's an automatic replacement. I mean, Tom Curran is an excellent bowler. Uh, he just hasn't quite got the pace for me. And I think he has had some good performances, but this series, no wickets in, in the two games that he played. I mean, you know, decent economy rate, actually, but just, he just hasn't quite got enough for me for the World Cup, given its English conditions, where I think Willie, also with his batting as well, could come in for the odd game and do a job. Mm. There, there is of course you know, another left arm option which is Harry Gurney who is a mm. star in the, the big bash and, and has really bowled superbly but the trouble is he doesn't offer much else he hasn't got much uh, ability with the bat and he's actually dropped a few catches so uh, there, there's another reason I mean, Willie actually is incredibly fit one of the fastest people round the boundary a brilliant thrower, great catcher so just for his all round value I think I'd still be keeping him
1: yeah, OK, fair enough. I mean, it, I, I, it's a totally convincing argument. It's just, it just something that struck me while I've been out here. Is, it, you know, do you necessarily need a left armour? Does it have to be a left armour if your left armour isn't of the, the very highest quality? Uh, just on the squad, I, I think it's pretty clear, it's becoming fairly clear now, that Joffrey Archer is going to be included in the England squad for the series against Pakistan that uh, is before the World Cup. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a slightly ridiculous situation on two fronts. One is that the provisional squad has to be named by the 23rd of April, but you can still change it between the 23rd of April and the 22nd of May. So you know, England can pick Archer, give him a go against Pakistan. He, became, he went round the park in four matches, you know, 0 for 80 in four matches. Uh, you know, they then can take him out. They can change it again. So they they have got that latitude to have a look at him. Was, I think there was that feeling that he, you know he was going to go into the World Cup or be picked in a World Cup squad without them having a look at him. No, they could they could put him in, and they could take him out again. So I I, I think it's fairly clear that they're going to have a look at him in that Pakistan series. See what he's got. See what he's. You're made of in terms of international cricket, and then they can make a decision from there. I suppose the one thing about that is that it, you know, it's, it's going to be quite tough on a player who's not in that provisional squad. Say if they do pick Archer, so they leave out Curran, and then they say, "No, no, don't fancy Archer. He, he doesn't look quite right for international cricket." And then they bring back Curran again. You know, you think, "Well, hold on a second. You know, I was in the squad, and I'm out of it, and then I'm, I'm back in it again." But I suppose that you know that is the sort of the ruthless nature of international sport. We're talking about the World Cup. You do absolutely what's best for the team. The other thing as well is how ridiculous is it that you can only have 15 men in your squad in the first place. I think it's a really intense tournament, nine group matches. I think you should be allowed bigger squads, 16, 17, just to to give teams the the options, the variations, that you don't have this this sort of whittling down to 15, which I think is too few for a, a competition like this. Well, that's a, that's a very good point.
0: And uh, it, it sounds then as if the World Cup's going to be the survival of the fittest. Uh, well, it could so, be, couldn't
1: it? It could yeah. be, that's the point. Uh, I mean, you, you will be able to replace players uh, during the World Cup, but of course that then knocks them out of the World Cup. They can't then come back. So, you know, someone was injured in the third game, and you think, well, do we take a risk uh, down the line? Do we, do we keep them in the squad, hope they get fit for, say, three weeks down the line? You, you, you probably you can't do that. I, I think... You, you probably take someone out. Right? Whereas, if you had a 17-man squad, say, or even a 16-man squad, you could keep someone in and hope they would be fit for later in the tournament. I, I think bigger, bigger squads is what we need. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's, that's fair enough. I think you need bigger squads touring around the Caribbean, covering uh, covering the <laughs> matches. Actually, uh, you need you need more bag carriers. Anyway, we'll pause there, and after the break, we're going to look at the West Indies and their revival, both in Tests and one Dayers.
1: You are listening to the Analyst Inside
0: Cricket podcast with Simon Hughes and Simon Mann. Welcome back. I'm sure you can hear in the background the the parrots and the the, the tropical birds tweeting away in the the outside of Simon Mann's hotel room. Where where actually actually are you? Give us a, a little kind of scene setter.
1: Well, I'm in uh, Rodney Bay in St. Lucia, which is in the northern part of the island. The ground is about a mile and a half walk away. And actually, we've not been taking a taxi to the ground. We've been walking to the ground uh, and walking back as well. And it's been a a nice change just to get some exercise before and after again. The marina is away to my left-hand side with all the uh, rich people's boats in it. And it's a, a pleasantly warm morning. It's a bit overcast at the moment, but it's around about 25 degrees. And I've got the window open. As you say, you can hear the birds tweeting in the background.
0: Well, it, it's, it's a tough life, as we said. You know, Barbados, Grenada, St Lucia, out of the three,
1: which is your favoured island? I really liked our timing in Grenada, actually. Uh, not as developed in terms of uh, tourism as St Lucia and Barbados but it was a really sort of lovely sort of feel to the place really, really friendly and if you do get the chance to go in the future t- take it. It, it it's really worth it and it's actually great to get some cricket I've, I've been to Grenada twice now and the first two matches not a single ball bowl. first first game I was there back in 2004 I didn't even go to the ground it'd be so wet we knew the game wasn't going to take place and of course the last Week we were there, the first match. Well, I was just drizzle all day, but just despite the drizzle, it was a, it was a fabulous experience. Very much kind of
0: traditional venues, um both Saint Lucia and Grenada. I just love the fact that you've got the sort of wooded hills at the back, and you know, little houses perched on it. It really makes you feel like you are in the Caribbean somehow. A Barbados sort of stadium. It could be anywhere in the world, really, despite the. The sight of the massive uh, ocean-going liners in the harbour at the back of the back of the ground. So let's let's look at the West Indies and um, us, you know we we were both there. I was there two years ago. I remember in Barbados the one-day side there just decimated the West Indies. England were completely far too good. Uh, in fact, in the the last one-day international, I think England got about three hundred and West Indies were at uh, one point forty-six for eight. And this time, they've been much more competitive. What do you put that down to?
1: Well, one player in particular, obviously, Chris Gale. He's not been always part of this West Indies one day set up, but he played in the World Cup qualifiers. He helped them through to the World Cup. He's back in the side and he was i mean, just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal just stunning hitting. One of the sixes he hit yesterday in St. Lucia, just one of the biggest sixes I've ever seen. Okay, it was off a free hit, but it was like, it was like watching an aeroplane take off. It went miles in the air and then landed on the, the roof of the pavilion at the far end of the ground. Just fantastic hitting, 39 sixes, 424 runs. Uh, you know, he's not a conventional one-day player because he doesn't run very much. You know, he's it really just stand and deliver. Shimron Hetmeyer as well, made 100 in, in Barbados. He is a, a real talent. Uh, he's going to be a, a big player for the West Indies in the future. They just look a bit more of a unit. Jason Holder was talking about, you know, we need to find that consistency. I think they, they struggle in the field. I mean, players like Ashley Nurse, he dropped a lot of catches. Their bowling at times has been uh, ragged. Uh, but then, you know, you could say the same... For England, their, their bowling has been uh, attacked and, and destroyed at, at times as well. Uh, you know, on on their day, on their surface, they are a dangerous team. They they have got some they got some good hitters, and uh, you know, lots of talent. They need to improve their fielding. Their bowling needs to go up a level. Uh, batting looks that's pretty good. Jason Holder saying, you know, I, I said to him the other day. You, you know, do you think you could go to England and, and cause some shocks? And he looked at me, he's almost bristled in, in his very nice, polite way. He's a, he seemed a lovely man, uh, Jason Holder. He said, you know, we're, we're not going to cause some shocks. We're going there to get to the semi-finals. And if we get to the semi-finals, we're going to England to win the World Cup. Uh, you know, it seems, to me, that seems unlikely. That I think they are, you know, outsiders. But there is enough talent in that West Indies side. If they did get to the semi-finals... On their day, they could cause problems for every single team in the competition. Remember last year, they went to India and they won a one-day international and they tied a one-day international. And that's that's a pretty good effort in a five-match series in India to to win one. And even the, the game they tied, they rather threw away. They really should have won it. So they should have taken two games in India. And that is a good effort. That's a good feat to do that.
0: Yes, I suppose it's going to be down to how they adapt to conditions, both batting and bowling, really, uh, whether they've got the bowlers mm. to exploit the uh, the English conditions. Uh, obviously, the white ball doesn't do that much in England, but it does a bit more than it certainly did in Barbados or Grenada. And uh, the other thing is whether they've got the batsman who can adapt to you know the ball moving around a bit. Uh, Gail, I just did a little quick uh, mathematical sum here, and his boundary count in that four games 24s and sixes. 39 60s 39 60s age 39 i mean it's just remarkable 10 6s in innings practically i mean it's extraordinary Performance. I have had to eat humble pie because I said after the first game, I thought his, even though he made 100 in that first game, which England won, I thought perhaps his his batting might hold the West Indies back, actually, and ultimately wouldn't be a a good reason for them to to back them to, to do well in the World Cup. And of course, since then, he's just absolutely demolished every bowler in sight. And his... Four hundred and twenty-four runs, three hundred and fourteen in boundaries. So only he's only he's only run about a th- a one in four of his runs actually, uh, a quarter of his runs. So a phenomenal performance, but not not that much else from the batsmen. Um, Hetmyer with a hundred, yes, but you sort of slightly. I mean, Shea Hope didn't really do much. The openers, apart from obviously Gale. Fairly nondescript, so I'm just not sure if they've got anything else. If if Gale goes early,
1: saw uh, Darren Bravo uh, play a good hand in Grenada down the order. Carlos Brathwaite, he showed what he's capable of in, in Grenada as well. Jason Holder, and they've got some. I think the, the point about them is they've got some good hitters, they've got some uh, very aggressive players. And it, you know, if they do find themselves in a situation on a on a decent pitch. That they could take down a big score and they could upset uh, you know one of the the more fancied teams, I, I agree with you about their, their bowling uh, you know, O'Shane Thomas, he's is, is got some pace he's a big lad and he, he runs in he's got some pace, but is he going to find those sort of surfaces in England that, that, that's going to help him as, as happened uh, yesterday in, in St Lucia where he picked up five wickets and ran in and enjoyed the extra banks, he, probably not I mean, that's, that's one thing that's going to be against him but then, you know, probably in this World Cup in England, if the weather is half decent uh, th- then lots of teams are going to find that problem you know, with, with their bowlers have they got the bowlers to, to take wickets? Or is it going to be a, a batting World Cup? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's an issue, isn't it, actually? You know, of, for the game, uh, that, that conversation about the balance between bat and ball. And in a way, it was good uh, that England did produce a, a low score. That was all put to bed, in a way, that argument about... Uh, you know the, the batsmen all was dominating so we've had England one day score their highest score against the West Indies and the next match they played they scored their lowest score against the West Indies the bowlers are not totally out of it
0: well, I certainly think that one way of uh, adapting or improving the balance between bat and ball will be the use of the Dukes ball in one day cricket, the white ball does do more, the Duke's white ball, than the Kookaburra. And it's been the Kookaburra that's dominated World Cup cricket and I- ICC, any ICC tournaments, and therefore all One Day Internationals have been played with the Kookaburra ever since 1999. Uh, but the, I know from talking to the Duke's people that they're, they're starting to encroach into. ICC territory they're trialing the white duke's ball in various sort of lower division tournaments of the world cricket league and that kind of thing in uh, some uh, some of the domestic tournaments as well and gradually as long as it gets some validation i think the the white duke's ball will start being used in one day international cricket bilateral cricket and all that and i just think that will gradually bring the scores down i think it's going to be potentially Uh, You know, sort of at the moment, the the run rates in one day international cricket from say England's point of view about 6.4 and over, uh, which was originally 4.5 or something when they first started playing international cricket. So they've got two runs and over better over the last 30 years. I think going back to the Dukes ball will bring that back about 0.5, so round about. Five point eight, five point nine, six and over sort of scores, sort of run rates, which will mean scores are around three hundred, you know, just under three hundred, which often makes the best games. Actually, the best games of cricket in fifty overs seems to be those scores of sort of two eighty to three hundred. Do you agree?
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that good balance between bat and ball. I think what actually what I think you want is a variation. I think you want some weeks or some matches where you have low scoring games some weeks you have high scoring games in in, within that series I suppose that's where the pitches come into it as well if you have a pitch as we did in St Lucia which helps the bowlers gives gives back something to the bowlers then you're going to have a a lower scoring game so perhaps there's there's that as well Uh, it's not just all about making absolutely flat batter friendly surfaces. So just just on the Dukes ball, do you, do you think there's a danger that you could have one day internationals where teams are 25 for five because the, the, the Dukes ball's doing too much?
0: Well, I think it, 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 it's happened with the Kookaburra ball. In fact, it happened in, at Laws against South Africa, didn't it, in fact, uh, with, with uh, Kigisa Rabada taking those early wickets. It happens occasionally when the, the pitches are a bit more conducive. But I think the trouble is, I think batsmen have become so used now to... Uh, the, the, the Kookaburra ball doing absolutely nothing in various one-day international scenarios, that they, they've lost any kind of ability to negotiate the ball when it does move. And that's part of the reason why we're seeing, you know, test match teams struggling, top-order batsmen struggling as well. Just because the, the, everyone's become so used to the white ball doing nothing, and that's what they play the majority of their cricket against. I think by bringing back the, the Duke's white ball into... Domestic cricket and international cricket, batsmen will just have to be a bit more selective. And you, you're, you, you know, I don't think it's going to affect a, a, the game massively, but it might just make batsmen who actually played properly, as opposed to just slogging, um, you know, more valuable. And scores won't just come down a little bit, but you probably won't get those 25 for fives either, because mm. there'll be one or two batsmen in a one day side who are able to negotiate the moving ball a bit better.
1: Yeah. It's it funny, actually, watching Wednesday and then watching uh, yesterday's match. Uh, the, the overrate was really slow yesterday as well. They had lots of delays. and something like 11 overs in the first hour. It, it just felt as though the game was being played in slow motion. Of course, then it, it quickened up with England losing all those wickets. But it's funny how you just become so used to the ball just disappearing out of the park. And, and, and that's the norm. And, and uh, you know, that high-octane cricket... Uh, be- becomes what you, almost what you want to see and what you expect in a one-day game. And then you see something like yesterday. I think you know, it was something like after the first hour, it was something like 57 for two or 45 for two. And it felt, <laughs> strangely, felt actually quite dull. So we'll, we'll have to sort of recalibrate the way we watch the game as well if the, if the Duke's ball is, is brought in and, and scores become lower.
0: Well, you carry on, um, you know, that hardship of uh, staggering along to the ground, uh, you know, along the beach front there, perhaps a, a quick morning dip before the uh, the play starts and uh, the odd day at the beach. Uh, you, you carry on with, with all that and we'll just stare out at the rain and we'll, we'll speak to you next week. Yeah.
1: That, that's very kind of you, Yos. We've got three 2020s now at the end of this tour, which actually feels a bit odd in a way because the focus is so much on the World Cup that now there are three 2020 matches you know, in a way to pay the bills really or pay you know, more of the bills. They'll get, they'll get good crowds for that. Uh, there's a World T20 next year but it feels slightly out of place at the end of this tour, the, 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 the T20 series. But anyway, on we go, another a week to go, and then I'll be back to that, uh, that rain and drizzle. You, listen, you've been having a, a heat wave, haven't you, while I've been away in the, in the UK? It's been the, the warmest February in history.
0: Well, not today. Uh, <laughs> my, my son's uh, attempted barbecue for his 21st birthday was, was abandoned. But last week, it would have been a, a nice idea, but today, No. It's the umbrellas and the big raincoats today. So um, any uh, sort of Caribbean sunshine you can throw our way, the better. Anyway, thanks for your time and thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll speak to you this time next week.
1: Goodbye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.